We're going to continue our study in 1 Timothy. Remember, the Apostle Paul spent three years at the church at Ephesus. But after he left, false teachers came in. So Paul sent his trusted helper, Timothy, to get the church straightened out and functioning the way God wants churches to function. So Timothy was supposed to command the false teachers not to teach anything contrary to the scriptures. We saw that in verse 3. He said, you charge them that they teach no other doctrine because the false teaching was causing confusion, raising questions and speculations, and nobody was being edified. So today we look at the difference between the right use of the law and the wrong use of the law as we go through verses 5 through 11. And let me follow along as I read them just so we get the idea and the context. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned or sincere faith from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto empty talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor that about which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. All right, that's, that's the context. Verse 5 tells us that this is the proper reason for preaching the law, the moral law of God. You might have in your Translation, instead of commandment, you might have charge or instruction. The end of the charge or the end of the instruction or the end of the commandment is love. So what that amounts to is the great purpose of the commandment is love out of a pure heart. That's the reason God gave the commandments, to change people so they will have a love for God. Isn't that what Jesus said? Matthew 22, we don't have to turn there. They, they challenged him, the, the leaders of the Judaism, challenged Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment of all? They're hoping he'd pick one of them so they could catch him in his words. But Jesus said the, great, the first and great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Remember that? 
Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5, which is the law of Moses. So that's the end of the commandment. Love. Love God with all your heart. Pure heart. The second one was love your neighbor as yourself, of course. But nobody can love God and nobody has a pure heart. Why not? Because they're all sinners. Born with a sinful nature that is against God. The carnal mind is enmity or hostility or hatred for God. Romans 8, 7 says. So nobody can love God or their neighbors. You know how people are born with their sinful nature. What do they love the most? Self. Born that way. Why do you think little children tear toys away from other children? That's mine. It's not even theirs, but it's mine. Okay, we're born with that nature, that disposition to be self-centered. Not other-centered, not God-centered. But when a sinner sees that he cannot keep God's law, finally God opens their eyes to see how impossible it is to keep God's law, that the commandments are too demanding for him to keep perfectly, then by God's grace he turns to Jesus and believes that Jesus kept the law in his place. That's the key. He sees he can't keep the law, but there was one who kept the law for sinners. It was Jesus. As soon as you believe that, that Jesus kept the law in my place, he lived the perfect life that I couldn't live, as soon as you believe he died for you, rose for you, you're justified. Right away, that moment that you believe, you're justified. You stand before God as a righteous man because you finally came to the conclusion, by God's grace, that you couldn't do it by trying to keep the law. It was impossible. But Jesus kept it. He was righteous. And as soon as you believed he did what you couldn't do, you got his righteousness put on your account, and God says, I accept you based on that. You see, people walk around all the time thinking, God accepts me because I'm not as bad as others. I'm a decent person. If that was the case, you know, there'd be a lot more people in heaven because a lot of people are just good and they're nice. The one you were mentioning, brother. They're nice people. They'll do, they'd take the shirt off their back, give it to you. But God doesn't go by how nice you are, how many nice things you do for others. He goes by, did you keep all my laws? That's perfect righteousness. And you say, no, I didn't. I couldn't. He says, okay, I got something for you. My son kept them all. You believe in him? Then I accept you on that basis. Not on the basis of how good you think you are, but on the basis of how good my son was in your place. Then you're justified, all your sins are forgiven, and... The wrath of God will never be an issue with you again. He poured all his wrath out and his anger against your sins on Jesus instead of you. That's salvation. And at that point, when you come to that point where you have believed, you're justified, you're forgiven, God has given you that love that you need to love him and your fellow man. The church is supposed to be comprised of members 
who have been regenerated and born again. That's the only people that should be members of a local church, those that are born. Others should attend and hear the gospel, but the only ones that actually should be allowed and permitted into the membership are those who are born again, who believe Jesus died in their place and rose for their justification. So this gift of love comes from God's work in the heart, right? He sends the Holy Spirit who makes the gospel real to you, changes your heart, gives you a new heart, and that's the first thing you get. You see in verse 5, the end of the command is love out of a pure heart. So God gives you that pure heart when he regenerates you. Now you can love. So where does love come from? The pure heart or the new nature that God gave you. The heart is the new nature. He takes the old heart of stone out, puts a new heart of flesh in, has his law written on it, and you're cleansed and you're forgiven. And with that new nature, you can love God and fellow Christians and even your enemies at that point. That's love out of a pure heart. Also, this gift of love comes from a good conscience. God also gives you a good conscience. What's a conscience? Everybody has one, but not everybody has a good conscience. Everyone has a conscience which we say is the warning system that God puts in every person, saved or unsaved. Everybody has a conscience. It's like, a, it's like a smoke detector, right? Something goes wrong in your house with the smoke comes up and the alarm goes off. Something's wrong. That's what the conscience does. It tells you that you're either doing right or wrong. Your conscience is your judge. It judges you whether you're right or wrong. Now, there has to be a standard. And everybody's standard isn't the same. The cannibals in the faraway places somewhere, okay, their standard is we eat people and it's not wrong because we've been doing that for generations. But they know other things are wrong, like stealing or committing adultery, but their standard, the standard is what you have in your mind, what, what the standard is that you've been taught. Ours is the Bible, Amen. Okay, the Word of God is our standard. It's in our mind, in our heart. We know what the Word of God says. And when we deviate from that standard, the alarm goes off. The conscience accuses us. It condemns us. And it either produces guilt or shame or sometimes fear. Those who are born again and love with a pure heart will have a good conscience. It won't accuse them on and on and on unless they do something wrong. Then it will accuse them. But what does a Christian do when he's fallen into sin? He repents. Okay? So that, that's the good conscience. It tells you when you're wrong and you right away say, God, forgive me. God forgives you. Good conscience. That's what we want. When we repent, we take that sin off our record because God forgives us for all our sins. He washes it away. 
and we keep a clear conscience. A clear conscience means that, that you could have anybody that has ever had any kind of relationship with you fill up a baseball stadium, and not one of them would have anything that they still said, you know, this to me, and he never said anything to me about it. They would all say, yeah, he did me wrong, but he came to me and he asked for forgiveness. That's the way it should be with everybody that you have a relationship with. Not one of them can say, you know, you messed me up, and you never said, I'm sorry or anything. That's a clear conscience. Paul said that he exercised himself always to have a conscience void of offense before men and God. You know in your conscience, I, didn't, I haven't done anything wrong to anybody. If I have, I've gone to them and asked for forgiveness. I haven't done anything wrong before God. If I have, I ask God for forgiveness. That, that's how you keep a clear conscience. It's not bothersome. It's not like at night you're tossing and turning. Uh, I don't know. Is somebody going to find out what I did? Is somebody going to hate me? No, clear conscience. That's a good conscience. That comes from God. He gives you the love out of a pure heart. That love comes out of a good conscience. And and the third thing he he mentions here in verse 5, genuine faith. It's in Christ. It's not a hypocritical faith. It's not a faith that says, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And then lives a life that's contrary to what Jesus wants. That's a hypocritical faith. But unfeigned faith or a genuine faith is a faith that honors Christ and tries to obey Christ throughout life in every area. Don't do it perfectly. You stumble and fall at times. You repent, get back up and say, Lord, forgive me. That's a genuine faith. Remember, faith that is true faith, God-given faith, saving faith, always has with it repentance when you don't do right and always has with it good works. Faith and good works go together. If you really believe, it will produce good works. So this is the purpose of the law, that it would turn us to Christ Christ would save us because we can't keep the law and we would have this love out of a pure heart, good conscience, and a genuine faith. Now, as we move on, we have some people who didn't have these things. In verse 6, please look at verse 6. From which some having swerved, have turned aside unto empty talk. The King James uses the expression, have turned aside unto vain jangling. I like that. You don't hear that much anymore. But that's what it means. Vain jangling is empty talk. Some men in the church did not have pure hearts. And therefore, they did not have a good conscience or genuine faith. They were not saved, in other words. They strayed, they swerved aside from these virtues of a pure heart, a good conscience, faith unfeigned. They may have started, and most likely did start in the church, looking like Christians, like they had true faith and a good conscience 
and a love for the brethren. Remember, the false teachers can put on a really good show in order to get into their positions. But whatever, however they started, they swerved aside from it. Now all they're doing is talking empty talk. They, to turn aside here literally means to go off course. They left the biblical path and their lives were characterized by empty talk, fruitless discussions, always picking, nitpicking and pulling up some things to discuss that just were, were empty and vain and useless. They had no edifying effects for the people. That's how these people were. Remember, false teachers do not want to love and help other Christians. They don't care about the saints. They want to get power and money. And they talk about God, but they don't love God or love the people of God. They have a lot of Bible talk, a lot of Christ words that they use. But they're not interested in glorifying Christ or helping the Christians grow. They're only interested in themselves, getting a position, getting more money, getting power, having esteem, like the, like the rabbis used to want the esteem of the people. Have everybody come up in the marketplace and say, oh, rabbi, rabbi, you're wonderful. That's what these guys want. Oh, pastor, pastor, you're such, you're such a great prayer warrior. You're such good with the word. That's what they love. That thrills their evil soul. Verse 7 says, desiring to be teachers of the law, they neither understand what they say nor that about which they make strong affirmations. So these are men who have no heart for God, no love for God's people. They've never been filled with the Spirit of God. And now they want to be teachers of the law. Such an important area, and they want to teach it, but they don't even understand this law that they're trying to teach people. They don't understand what the law says or matters related to God's word, even though they make confident statements about these topics. They're dogmatic. They say, this is what the Bible teaches. And they don't even know what they're talking about. Well, that's, that's a picture of uh, some of the things that are going on in our church today, our churches. Men desire to be preachers when they're not qualified. Because they believe it's a good job for them to have. They can make money, maybe lots of it. You see the ones on TV, have their own private jets. That's a great job. Makes them popular, they get esteem from people, and they're powerful. But these are people who have no humility, no fear of God, no sense of the tremendous responsibility that it is to watch over men's souls, which is a pastor's responsibility. They have no sense of that. They don't care less about your soul. So understand something about the position of a pastor. It's not a job. It's a calling. It's not like you go to a guidance counselor in high school and, and uh, what are the areas I could study? Oh, yeah, okay, I'll be a plumber, and, and I'll sign up for a lawyer, and I'll be a doctor, and all that. That's not what it is in the pastorate. You don't sign up for it because it looks like it'll be a good thing for you. 
God must call you to be a pastor. It must be a divine intervention in your life that puts it within you and equips you to be the pastor of a church. But to them, it was just a job. These men were not called. They crept in, as Jude says, they crept in secretly, subtly, and somehow got into the eldership. Either they were very, very slick, like many of them are, to get a foothold, to get a hearing, to become popular. But somebody lacked discernment to let them get that far, in most cases. Somebody just did not understand the qualifications. We'll get to them eventually in 1 Timothy 3. So these false teachers were not only ignorant of God's word, but they were dogmatic about their false teachings. So think about the fact that Paul says these men desire to be teachers of the law. It would probably indicate that they were legalists. And they used the law in the wrong way. Like the rabbis used to in Israel. What the rabbis used to do is take God's word and then they'd mix their own ideas in with God's truth. So they had a little bit of truth, which makes it sound really good, but then they brought their own ideas in, their own traditions. And it was Jesus who rebuked them and said, you have made God's word of no effect by your traditions. They just blended them together and made a composite out of it, and that was their law. That's probably what these guys were doing in the church in Ephesus. They crept in, they mixed their ideas with some truth, and and what they ended up with was man's ideas about salvation. And man's ideas about how to live the Christian life. Man's ideas about salvation are so far from the truth. They they believe that you can actually do something in your human capacity to make God view you as good enough to go to heaven. Good works, singing in the choir, teaching a Bible study, Sunday school class, all these things. Praying. That's probably what they were teaching. If you do these things, this is what legalists teach. If you do these ten things, that's your righteousness. You'll go to heaven. No, Jesus is your righteousness. Just believe in him. There's nothing that a human being is capable of doing to make God attracted to him. It's just the opposite. So in verse 8, Paul says, we, but we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Paul wants to be sure that Timothy knows there's nothing wrong with the law. Even though these guys are using it wrongly, there's nothing wrong with the law. How do we know there's nothing wrong with the law? Because God said it was good, Right? Romans 7.12, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So God said it, 
The law is good. What is the moral law of God? It's a reflection of God's nature and a reflection of God's will. This is how we know God's will. He tells us in the Scripture, through His laws, through His commandments, through the Gospel. So it's good, it's righteous, it's holy. Because that's how God is. God is good, He's righteous, He's holy, He's pure. So His law is the same as He is. It's a reflection of God. You look at the Bible, you're looking in the mirror, you're seeing God in His perfect law. The law was never meant to save men. The Jews never understood that. They thought the law was meant for them to keep it so God could say, okay, you're, you're good. But the law was never meant to be an instrument to save men. It was meant to point out how bad sinners are and to discourage them from trying to keep the law as a way of salvation. It's to point out how guilty sinners are and how hopeless they are because the law is too demanding. God's standard of righteousness is perfection. Nobody can reach it. And yet, the rabbis brought it down so that men could keep all the rituals and ceremonies and regulations that they had made up, and they called that righteousness. You can't keep God's law when you just read the word of God and see how demanding it is. Never kill. You say, well, I've never killed anybody. Oh, yeah? Have you ever been angry at anybody? Has anger ever arisen in your heart against your spouse, your kids, your neighbor? You've just committed murder, Jesus said. Have you ever lusted in your heart for a woman or for a man? Okay, that's the same as adultery, Jesus says. So it's not just the externals. It's the internals, the heart. You can't keep the law. Even if you kept it externally, you can't keep it internally. So we're guilty. You've seen Ray Comfort go around and ask people those questions? Pretty neat, the way he does it. Have you ever lied? No, I've never lied. Well, then you're a liar. You just lied right then. (laughs) Have you ever lusted for a woman? And finally, they break down. They say, yes, yes, yes. Okay, well, you're a liar, an adulterer, and a blasphemer. And what should God do with people like that? Send them to hell. Okay. But until God turns the lights on, that you see how bad you are, you think you're not that bad. So the proper use of the law is to show you your sinfulness. And the, the false teachers completely misused the law. They said, no, you can keep the law. You do this, this, God will accept you. Jesus says no. So what was the law designed for? We're hinting at it. Verses 9 through 11 tell us. Let's look at those for just a minute. Verse 9. Remember he just said there's a right use of the law. If we use it lawfully, this is a good way to use it. Verse 9 says, Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy, profane, for murders of fathers, murders of mothers, and for manslayers for fornicators, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for kidnappers, for liars, 
for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So the law is not made for righteous man. Once you are born again, once you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're made righteous by faith, you don't need the moral law of God to reveal your problems anymore. You already know them. You've already confessed your sin. You're not guilty anymore. You believed in Jesus that He kept all those moral laws in your place as your substitute. You're off the hook. He paid the price, took your sin debt, paid the whole thing, and God says, you're in good standing with me for the rest of your life. Judicially, on the record books in heaven, all your sins are taken off and all God sees is the righteousness of Jesus on your record. He says, you're good. It will always be that way. You'll always have the righteous standing in Christ. Nobody can take it away. That's why you can't lose your salvation. Once He makes you righteous by imputing the righteousness of Christ to you, it stays that way. That's legal. That's your legal standing. Your practical standing is trying to get better and better and better through the rest of your life. That takes a lot of work. That's not perfect. That's a process. We call it sanctification, right, Terry? Process of sanctification. Moving further and further away from sin, closer to God. That takes our whole lifetime. But our legal standing is 100%. We're perfect. So keep those two differences in mind. Once you're born again, you don't need the law to keep telling you you're guilty, you're a sinner. That's already been taken care of. You've been saved. So the law in the beginning was written down by Moses. That's what God had Moses do, write down the law so sinners could actually know in an objective way just how sinful they were. Words, thoughts, and deeds. If you tell somebody in a general sense they're just sinners, that's good, but it's not the details they need to understand. They need to understand what the law says. No, your words, your thoughts, your deeds are all imperfect before the holy God. And I'm going to charge you as guilty for the things you say, the things you think, and the things you do. That's what the law does. It says every part of your life is corrupted and displeasing and offensive to me, the holy God. That's the proper use of the law. To tell sinners that God requires them to keep His law 100%, which they can't do. That's the bad news. And then you tell them about Jesus who did keep every aspect of God's law without failure. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, law, No flesh should be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law is not for a righteous man in the sense that he needs to learn it so he can turn to Jesus for salvation. The righteous man has already been saved. Amen? Okay. So he doesn't need the law for that. He needs the law in this sense 
as the word of God to keep growing, learning how to become a better follower of Christ. But he doesn't need it to turn him away from his self-effort to Christ. So, who is the law made for? He tells us, not for the righteous man, but for now there's a list here in verses 9 and 10. Let's go over these briefly. In verse 9, but for the lawless and disobedient. This is, these are the people that the law was made for. They need to hear the law of God. Those who are lawless and rebellious. In other words, people who don't submit to law. They're going to do their own thing. That's how we start life. We want to do our own thing. Many do it. They're lawless. If you watch the news at all, you see lawlessness. Okay? People make up their own rules. They just walk into stores to steal a bunch of stuff. They walk out and nobody touches them. Nobody gets arrested. And nothing happens. They set buildings on fire and police cars on fire. And nothing happens. That's lawlessness. God says the law is meant for those people. They need to be told, you broke the law. Here's the consequence. Then he mentions ungodly. No reverence for anything sacred. That's what ungodly is. No reverence for the Bible, for the church, for Christ, for God. They're just ungodly. They're very unlike God. Also for sinners. What's a sinner? It's somebody who has broken God's laws. He missed the mark. He can't hit the target. God says, be holy as I am holy. They can't be that. They missed the mark. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He also calls them unholy. The law was made for unholy and profane people. Unholy people are not, they're not separated from sin. They're indifferent to sin. They bask in sin. They love sin. Profane people are irreverent people. Irreverent towards God or anything holy. Then we've got at the end of verse 9, people who killed their mothers and fathers. He said, who would do that? Lots of people. Sinners. The law was made for those who murder mothers and fathers and kill anybody. Manslayers. That's a murderer. Breaking all God's commandments. They need to hear the commandments. God is against murder. God is against adultery. God is against all these things. And you've committed them. Verse 10 says, These also must hear the law of God. Who are they? Fornicators. These are immoral people. And the King James says in verse 10, after fornicators, For them that defile themselves... With mankind. You know who that is. Those are homosexuals. They defile themselves with mankind. Man with man, woman with women. Homosexuals need to hear the law of God. There's also kidnappers. Who are they? They steal. They break the eighth commandment. 
They're, they're stealing people. We've got all kinds of people involved in human trafficking. They steal people and they sell them like they were merchandise. Right after kidnappers are liars. Those who break trust by telling the opposite of what is actually true. God says, they need to hear the law that no liar shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Perjurers. Who are they? Perjurers are those who bear false witness. They're they're liars too. Somebody's on trial. They bring a false testimony against them. Or they just accuse their own brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers of doing something they didn't do. So those are just a few of the categories of people who are not righteous but need to become righteous by hearing God's law, hearing how bad they are, and by God's grace, repenting of their sin, turning to Christ. He says at the end of verse 10, if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So in other words, he's not completed the list. That's just a partial list. Anything that goes against the doctrine in God's word. That person's a sinner and needs to hear what God's law says about that. This word sound in the Greek gives us our English word hygiene. Sound doctrine. The law of God is healthy and pure and clean. Any teaching that is in conflict with God's law is dirty and defiled and wrong. The law was made to correct all sinful actions and thoughts and speech. Men must hear that they are lawbreakers. When you get in these short discussions with people and you ask them, however you approach them, but if you ask them, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And they say, yes. And what gives you confidence for that? They say, well, I'm a good person. That's when you want to zero in and and tell them what God's law says. Have you ever sinned? Give them examples. They say, yeah, well, I have lied occasionally. I have stolen occasionally. Okay, you're condemned. You're guilty. You've broken God's law. The law was made to awaken people's consciences to how they have violated God's holy commandments, and they can't go to heaven in that condition. They need a Savior. Paul says in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The law must be used properly, as Paul says, according to the glorious gospel. The gospel, if you preach the gospel correctly, it is a law. The gospel and the law are not against each other. They work together. Men must be told the bad news first, that they're lawbreakers. 
that they're bad people. They're not good people. They've sinned against the holy God. That's the proper use of the law. They've come short of the glory of God. And once you've said that, whether they understand it or not, or get it, or say, I see it, give them the good news. You give them the bad news, that's part of the gospel, then you give them the good news. That Jesus is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Romans 10.4. You can say it that way, or you can say it some other way, but Jesus has put an end to men thinking that they can be saved by keeping the law. He's the end of the law. Because he kept the law. He made a final conclusion to everybody who's trying to keep the law for salvation. He said, you can't do it. I did it in your place as your substitute. Believe in me. That will bring you salvation. And God will never punish you for breaking a law ever again. Because he punished me in your place. So Paul had the gospel entrusted to him. It was the glorious gospel that saved him. What did the gospel do for the Apostle Paul when he was on the road to Damascus? It showed him how horribly sinful he was in hating Christ, hating the Bible, hating Christians. He never forgot that. He gloried in it. It was the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Because he was finally able to see his self-righteousness Remember Paul thought that as far as the righteousness which is contained in the law goes, he was blameless? That was his thinking. When Christ spoke to his heart, he said, I haven't kept any of the laws really. I've broken them all. Because he heard from the voice of Jesus the glorious gospel of the blessed God. What's he mean by saying the blessed God God is the source of all our blessings, and He's to be praised. He's the blessed God. He sent His Son. He gave us the gospel. False teachers just didn't get it. The false teachers in the the church in Ephesus were puffed up, preaching false doctrine. Even though they were ignorant of the law, they preached it with conviction and strength. They didn't know what they were talking about. They led people astray. They were selfish and ungodly, and they fit into these categories, many of these categories in verses 9 and 10 that we just read. Many of them were like that. They stirred up strife and contention rather than edifying the saints. So what should we do? Preach the gospel? Tell them the bad news? And then the great news? That Jesus has conquered sin and death and whoever believes in Jesus will never have to face the angry, wrathful, holy God for the law-breaking that they did their whole life. Never have to face that again. Tell people. This is the only way of salvation. You can't keep the law. You can't be good enough. You can't be nice enough. You can't give away money enough. You can't support charities enough. You're a dead man unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has paid the price. He has made salvation 
a positive, absolute, objective, sure thing. He accomplished redemption on the cross. It's been paid for. It's like money in the bank. If you believe it, you can cash in. Sounds like a minion, doesn't it? But it's true. If you believe, he will give you salvation by his grace. So for us in this church, in every church that loves the Lord, we have to beware of false teaching. Aware of so many of the errors that are out there. If you watch any of the TV preachers, if you look on the YouTube and see some of these preachers, some of the articles that they write, books they write, you can see how many people have been deceived by false teachers. Just flooding in, supporting them with their millions of dollars, and they're being led astray because the false teachers don't care. So all of us must be on the lookout for false teachers. Only men who are qualified and whose life fits the description in verse 5. Remember verse 5, that these people have love out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and the faith that is genuine. Only those men are to be placed in the position of pastor. We'll go into more detail when we get to the qualifications of a pastor, but right now we're looking for men who have any influence in the church to be men who have a pure heart, good conscience, faith unfeigned. God has put that in them. That they love the Lord. They're not perfect, but they love the Lord. And many will come into churches who don't love the Lord, but they will pretend and to put on a show, put on a good act, be very knowledgeable, very charismatic, very attractive, very articulate, work their way into a position where they begin to steer the church the wrong way. Why? Because they've turned aside to vain jangling, empty words, seducing the people and pulling them away from truth and away from Christ. Pray that we'll be on the alert and that God will protect us and keep us focused on the truth. And here's one of the big problems in the churches. Men get put into office because they're popular, because they're good speakers. That's really good that you have men like that. But do they meet all the qualifications that God requires? That's what we're looking for. Amen? Okay. Praise God for his goodness keeping us and not letting me be a false teacher. I could be. And you could be deceived. But I'm not and you're not. (laughs) Praise his name. Brother John, can you ask the Lord to bless us as we go? Heavenly Father, Lord, God, thank you so much for sending your son to die on the cross to pay for the sins of those that you gave him. Lord, we know that he completed the work, Lord. He bore your wrath. And because of that, Lord, we can be free and completed. Lord, we thank you so much for the time we've had today together. 
Lord, we just thank you so much for your loving kindness and grace and mercy in our lives. We pray for all of our loved ones, Lord God, that are not yours, whether they be our children, extended family, whoever they be. Lord, we pray for each one of them, God, that you would open their eyes, that they would believe. Father, just this universe is so vast. We're so small within it. And yet it pleased you to send your son down across the table. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you. We praise and thank you for all you've given us, Lord, for all that you are to us. We pray that you would help us to love you more. Lord, we pray that each time we're here that our worship will be pleasing to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this church. We thank you for our pastor. Father, that you have driven him to the word that he is trying to rightly, rightly preach it, Lord, and expose it. <coughs> we thank you so much for him, Lord. We pray you would be with us the rest of the day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.